Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 4th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. There are increasing reports of auditors using flawed methodologies and calculations, leading to recoupment demands and penalties. Details coming up. In Washington, lawmakers are putting the final touches on a $10 billion package to combat COVID-19. They hope to pass the legislation this week before their two-week recess. Matthew Albright has the complete legislative update. Whistleblower lawsuits are back in the news. The University of Miami recently paid millions of dollars in fines following an accusation of Medicare fraud. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Emman reports on another example of an alleged case of fraud. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and so we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and a special good morning to Chris Zanger, who's a new guest with us and uh, a listener and a giant in the physician practice world. So today, um, I'm going to talk about admissions. Someone recently asked, is there any wiggle room between when an inpatient admission order is written on a Medicare patient and when a condition code 44 change to outpatient is required? Now, although condition code 44 is really just a code that's placed on a claim when a patient's status has been changed, it's a lot of work to follow the required steps and it's time sensitive. So just changing the order sure would be welcome. Just the same as a physician would do if they enter the, an order for the wrong medication. As long as the medication hasn't been administered, the order can simply be canceled or corrected. But can we apply this standard to an improper admission order? Well, the good news is that CMS has told us in multiple places that a patient becomes an inpatient when they are formally admitted as inpatient pursuant to an inpatient admission order. The bad news is that they never define the activities that determine when a patient is formally admitted. Now we know a doctor can order inpatient admission far in advance of a scheduled admission, so the order itself has no special powers, and the date of that order doesn't constitute formal admission. And some have noted that the patient receiving the important message from Medicare constitutes the formal admission. Since at that point, they have discharge appeal rights. But hospitals have two calendar days to deliver the initial copy of the IM. So clearly, delivery of that form does not constitute the commencement of formal admission. And for scheduled admissions, the IM can be given up to a week in advance. So they would not be considered formally admitted simply because they received their important message. Going one step further, CMS allows for the admission order to be written by someone without admitting privileges, with that order then countersigned by a physician with admitting privileges. But CMS has also told us that if the physician responsible for countersigning it doesn't agree that the admission was appropriate or valid, that he or she should not countersign it and the beneficiary is not considered an inpatient and the stay may be billed to outpatient Part B. In other words, even though there was an order for inpatient admission and the patient had been registered as an inpatient and received their important message and received hospital care based on inpatient orders, 
By simply not countersigning it, CMS is stating the patient was never an inpatient at all. So where does that leave us? Well, the patient's an inpatient once formally admitted as an inpatient, but the placement of an inpatient order doesn't constitute formal admission. The delivery of the IM doesn't constitute formal admission. And even if an admission order exists and the patient receives inpatient care, they were not formally admitted if an inpatient order is not countersigned. In other words, we don't know if there's any wiggle room. So watch for my article on Thursday with even more details and my recommendations. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. The Monitor Monday Rack Report this morning with Nicole Emanuel is sponsored by Sound Physicians. This is World Health Organization Week, and Sound Physicians is proud to recognize this global event. Sounds Physicians is the leading physician partner to hospitals, health plans, physician groups, and post-acute providers. For 20 years, they've worked with their partners and community providers to bridge gaps in patient care from hospital to home. Visit soundphysicians.com. Here now is Nicole Emanuel. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. The pandemic rules or exceptions may be coming to an end April 16, 2022, That means that the exceptions will dissolve. For example, patients must have a three-day hospital stay in order for Medicare to cover rehab in a skilled nursing facility. This rule was suspended during PHE. CMS issued a proposed rule last week for the inpatient rehab facility prospective payment system for 2023 that would increase reimbursement payments by 2.8%, which will amount to approximately $170 million increase. This is after a 0.4 percentage point productivity adjustment and a 0.8% point cut for high-cost outliers. There is also proposed additional burdens for the facilities to collect data on its patients, regardless the payer. CMS will request uh, comments or accept comments until May 31st. On another note, the end of the first quarter of 2022 has passed. HHS has announced a reduction in Medicare provider appeals by 88%. The 52,641 appeals remain pending at OMA, whereas in 2018, 426,594 appeals were stagnant and awaiting an ALJ. Lastly, for those of you participating in managed care, when is the last time you reviewed your contract? How many of you know whether you have a termination at will clause buried within its contents? A lot of employment contracts contain a termination at will clause, and it's just fine. But with Medicare and Medicaid, we're talking about the use and profit from our tax dollars, access to health care, and the freedom of choice of providers. More protection for providers exists. A managed care organization cannot terminate providers for network willy-nilly. There has to be rules and appeal rights. Otherwise, the MCOs could terminate all providers but a few and gain profit by not paying providers. 
the MCOs exist to manage Medicare and Medicaid, not to profit off our tax dollars. And the ultimate victims of a wrongful termination brought on by an inadequate appeals process are the patients themselves. 42 USD Section 1395 CC provides the statutory basis for CMS's development of regulations for terminating provider agreements uh, for Medicare. Termination without cause is not one of the enumerated uh, ways or reasons to terminate. The MCOs will argue that simple contract law should apply, but nothing is simple in Medicare. 42 CFR 424.545 lays out provider appeal rights for Medicare. And it, 42 CFR 498.5 covers Medicaid providers, and it states any provider dissatisfied with an initial determination of termination is entitled to a hearing before an ALJ. The problem is that most providers end up being out of business before presenting to the ALJ, and its consumers have lost their healthcare providers. Injunctions are needed to preserve the status quo, and I propose an automatic stay of any adverse decision until legal adjudication has occurred. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. It's Monday, it's April 4th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference is April 11th through the 13th at the Hyatt Regency in Austin, Texas. This event will help equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to apcadvisors.org to register. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of relying on FAQs from the Medicare administrative contractors. Last week, I talked a bit about shared visits, and I promised to criticize NGS. Well, here it comes, though I have to temper my criticism a tiny bit. Unfortunately, not enough to undo the basic theory. So a client contacted me about 10 days ago because they read an FAQ that NGS posted about shared visits and consultations, and they wanted to know if it was right. The question was, can a consultative service in a hospital setting be performed on a split shared basis? NGS said, CMS rules on consultative services have not changed, despite the use of standard E&M coding for inpatient and outpatient consultative services since 2010. When a provider requests a consultative opinion of another provider, the consulting physician, excuse, the consulting provider must perform the service independently and cannot split share the required elements of the consultative EM service. 
So that answer was published on January 3rd of this year. A client sent it to me about 10 days ago, and I came a bit unglued because it's so terribly wrong. As I'm sure most of you know, Medicare basically banished the idea of a consultation about a decade ago in 2010. The term still appears in a few contexts, including the Stark Law, but Medicare doesn't recognize consultations as a type of an E&M visit. Requests for an opinion aren't billed as a consultation code. You just use a standard E&M code for a new visit, an initial hospital visit, or other traditional E&M code. There should be absolutely no doubt that standard E&M codes can be billed as a shared visit in the hospital. That's why we have shared visit codes. Now, one of the phrases I found particularly offensive in the, was the claim that CMS rules on consultative services have not changed. That statement is accurate only in the sense that there are not and have never been any regulations about consultation. The word rules should be used to refer to a regulation. Manual provisions are merely guidance and not rules. Since there have never been any regulations about consultations, saying the rules have not changed is akin to saying there have been no changes to the posted speed limit on the surface of Saturn. True, but grossly misleading. So I was prepared to rip into NGS, but it turns out there's one piece of good news. Right after my client asked this question, NGS realized the error. The new answer to their question says that as of 1-1-22, CMS has confirmed that consultative services may be performed on a split shared basis. The answer was revised March 18th, literally the day after the client asked me about it. So kudos to NGS for recognizing their error, but I can't give them too much credit because they had a categorically wrong FAQ up for two and a half months. And I'm not done. Worse yet, the FAQ still includes a different but equally wrong answer. NGS asks, what requirements apply to documentation for consultative services? Now remember, CMS doesn't pay for consultations, so the obvious answer is none. Yet for reasons I can't fathom, NGS says that the attending physician or NPP who's requesting the consultation must, an important word, enter a consultation request in the medical record. What a bunch of hooey. To repeat, there's no billing using a consultation code now. We just use a traditional E&M code. So there's no requirement anyone record who's requesting an E&M service. NGS just made this up. So if you find NGS singing the Eurythmics, would I lie to you? It appears that the answer comes from the who. You better, you better, you bet. Now, to be fair, I doubt that they're intentionally lying, but they're sure as heck very wrong. You better. You better, you better, you better. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Ferguson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. And good morning, Tiffany. What do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning all. So glad to be back. So listening to one of our hospital partners' complex case rounds, I heard the following case. Patient is an 80-year-old male with advanced dementia living in a nursing home with his wife. 
patient is day 20 in the hospital following an infection that impacted his previous shoulder replacement hardware, required removal, and now an antibiotic spacer. Patient has had a prior hip surgery. Now this infection has spread to that, impacted that impacting that impact um, implant as well, now requiring a replacement. Patient's going to need at least six weeks of IV antibiotics and another surgery for his soldier, a shoulder following completion of the antibiotics. Patient's still primarily bed-bound. Patient will need post-acute placement for the IV antibiotics. However, due to his cognitive level, they're having difficulty placing him, and now he is too acute to return to his home. He's stable now for discharge, quote-unquote, however unable to find an accepting facility given his new level of care needs. And thus, it's anticipated that he's going to be unable to return to his home or his wife. Understandably, understandably, there's a lot of details to this case that I'm not going to cover in this segment. We don't have enough time. However, the questions I asked the team at rounds was, what was the patient's goals of care? And more specifically, what were his advanced directives? Did this gentleman or his wife want to go down the road of significant treatment during this hospitalization? And what does his future look like knowing that he's going to return to the hospital for more high-risk surgeries? The group replied, we don't know. And guess what? The chart did not know either. Now, say the patient and or his wife would we say, yes, we want to do everything. Then this example may look very different as it relates to the question, does the wife understand what do everything for her husband means? However, it was clear that this was a process error that failed to stop and ask the necessary questions. When we consider value in care, we must examine outcomes. Now, Dr. Hirsch remind us that this is incredibly hard to define. I get it. Um, but however, I would like to say, I will ask, what is the likely outcome of this patient and the intended impact to his already declining quality of life? What is the cost that has now incurred on the health system and the payer who is likely Medicare? Enacted in the 90s, the Patient Self-Determination Act requires that hospitals and post-acute providers ask patients if they have an advanced directive, a medical power of attorney, and or their wishes for prior to medical treatment. The intent of the law is to provide an opportunity for adults to express their desires about medical treatment in advance and to educate the entire population on advanced directives. Additionally, we know outpatient providers are incentivized financially through CPT code 99497 to have advanced directive conversations with their patients. However, a 2020 review of more than 60 high-quality recent studies on advanced care planning, my link is in my article, found no impact on whether patients received the care they wanted or how they, re or how they rated the quality of their lives afterward. In the quest for medical necessity and the pressure for appropriate level of care, I encourage our health systems to consider not only the ailment inflecting the patient, but the person being impacted by this care and what this means to them. Quoted from Dr. Daniela Lamas in her New York Times essay, A Better Way to Face Death, the link is also included in my article this week, asks if we maybe should, should we be asking how our patients want to live instead of how they want to die. So today I ask our listeners, do you think the current process of attaining advanced directive information in your health system is having an impact on your hospital's outcomes? Highly likely, likely, neutral, unlikely, or highly unlikely? And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks uh, very much, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, the federal government's COVID relief funding is running out of money and fast. This includes money for vaccines, treatments, and testing for the uninsured, and states are already rolling back their vaccination and testing programs as these funds dry up. The Biden administration initially asked Congress in March for over $22 billion to refund COVID relief programs. A few weeks later, the package was slashed the amount to about $15 billion. Now we're down to $10 billion. Democrats want to get it passed before the two-week recess starts next week. And as of late last Friday, there does appear to be bipartisan agreement on a package. However, Republican senators do not agree with the Democrats that there is an urgency in passing the rule this week. And if it doesn't pass this week, Congress won't pick the issue up again until the end of the April. Speaking of money, uh, last week, the Biden administration released its proposed 2023 budget, which includes $1.7 trillion in mandatory spending for the Department of Health and Human Services, plus another $130 billion in discretionary spending. Now, some of the funding is directed towards implementing elements of the president's Build Back Better agenda, which may or may not be passed by Congress in the future. The budget includes health-related funds for COVID and future pandemics, mental, behavioral health and substance abuse, Indian health services, maternal health, health equity, and healthcare cybersecurity. Finally, the budget also includes investments into Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. The initiative aims to reduce the cancer rate by 50% over the next 25 years. Again, the administration's budget is only proposed at this point and includes a number of initiatives that would need congressional approval. Sticking to our money theme, coming this week, we can expect the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to release its annual report on national health expenditures. And we've got a sneak peek of what the report will say. Because many COVID government-paid programs are winding down, national spending on healthcare is expected to decelerate substantially over the next few years. Healthcare spending should drop from its current rate of nearly 20% of the gross domestic product down to about 18% for the next two years. An interesting analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation published this weekend compared CMS's projections in this year's report with the projections from CMS's 2019 report. The analysis found striking differences between how health expenditures were projected before the pandemic and with this week's report, our most current view of healthcare spending. For one, while projections show that medical costs themselves are expected to continually go up, unlike the pre-pandemic projections, it is now expected that the use of hospitals, nursing homes, and other medical facilities is expected to slow. We know that utilization of these facilities decreased significantly during the pandemic. It appears that that trend will stay with us, according to Kaiser's analysis, even as we have increasing numbers of older patients. Chuck, in place of hospital and nursing home usage, we can expect the trend toward home health care to continue, according to the analysis, with a strong push 
from the use of telehealth and other virtual health technologies. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. What I had asked is, do you think the current process of obtaining advanced directives information in your health system is having an impact on your hospital outcomes? And about 40% are neutral. Next is a big split between likely and unlikely. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for the results of today's Monitor Monday survey. Coming up, famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. That story is next. This is Monitor Monday Standby. There is a growing list of acronyms concerning patient notification forms. You need to understand them and use them compliantly or the consequences for your hospital could be severe. Fortunately, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will review all these important forms during his exclusive Rack Monitor webcast from ABN to the Moon 2022 Patient Notifications Compliance Update. Dr. Hirsch will explain the latest requirements for preparing and delivering the CMS-mandated forms. That includes the advanced beneficiary notice, hospital-issued notices of non-coverage, important message from Medicare, and the Medicare Outpatient Observation Notice, known as the Moon. Through compliant completion and delivery of these various notifications, you can substantially reduce your risk of unwanted scrutiny. The timely webcast is this Thursday, April 7th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To attend, register now at the Rand University Bookstore. Here now with our whistleblower report is Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Hey, this is a very interesting case, isn't it? Sure is, Chuck. Good morning, everybody. Last week, the United States joined a whistleblower's false claim back lawsuit against an electronic health record company called Modernizing Medicine and its co-founder and CEO, Daniel Kane. The case was brought forward by whistleblower Amanda Long, a former executive at ModMed who first filed this case in 2017. The whistleblower lawsuit alleges that ModMed misrepresented its EHR, EHR software's capabilities to qualify under the HHS EHR Incentive Program, also known as the Meaningful Use Program, whereby healthcare providers that use CMS-certified EHR software qualify for incentive payments from CMS. Specifically, ModMed is accused of violating the Meaningful Use Criteria, which requires an EHR vendor to create software with certain features, and then pays providers to utilize those certified EHR programs. In her whistleblower lawsuit, which the DOJ has joined, Ms. Long alleges that many of ModMed EHR's features do not work or do not do so reliably, meaning the government's payments to providers to incentivize MedMod med mod software use should not have been paid. In her KETAM complaint, Whistleblower Long also alleges that the company paid illegal kickbacks to physicians who used their software and that these kickbacks took the form of an enhanced exclusive interface platform, an e-couponing program, a prescription prior authorization program, a consulting program, a referral program, a site visit program, and a reference program. How's that for a smorgasbord of options? It is in its notice to the court, the DOJ noted that it is only intervening in part, but not all, of the whistleblower's allegations, 
and does not specify which of the allegations in the whistleblower's complaint it is pursuing and which it is continuing to investigate. To answer that question, we'll have to wait until mid-June when the government will file its own complaint and intervention, at which point it will be clear which allegations the U.S. will be pursuing against the defendants. It is noteworthy that the whistleblower opted to file this case in federal court in Vermont since the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Vermont has been at the forefront in pursuing fraud and kickback cases against EHR companies. Previously, the Vermont U.S. Attorney's Office has reached a $155 million settlement with eClinical Works, a $145 million settlement with Practice Fusion, and a $57 million settlement with Greenway Health LLC. That office also played a key role in the federal government's $8 billion global settlement with Purdue Pharma for civil and criminal violations, including allegations Purdue paid kickbacks to practice the EHR company practice fusion for designing medical software to influence physicians to prescribe its highly addictive opioid pills. We will be sure to continue to follow this case for Monitor Monday listeners as it unfolds. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law offices of Constantine Cannon. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Now, before we go, remember you can listen to all of Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.